Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. My name is Lou Moore. I'm the president of the Washington Research Council. And I'm here today with Chris Schobloom, who is our research director and senior economist. Chris, we're going to talk today a little bit about the capital gains tax proposals. We've got a new one now. We had one that the governor had touted. It was a bill introduced in the uh, both the House and the Senate. There's now a new version that's been introduced by the chair of the Finance Committee, Reuven Carlisle. So what's the latest? Yeah, for those who, who are familiar with, with the uh, Inslee proposal, uh, the Carlisle proposal is very close. In fact, it shares an awful lot of the same language. I imagine many of our listeners just aren't familiar with the Inslee, so I think we should go forward and describe directly what's in the, the, the Carlisle pro- proposal. Mm. It's based uh, mainly on uh, the federal capital gains law, uh, so that uh, mostly what's being picked up in the, by the state shows up on the, an individual's federal uh, return. The tax uh, will be imposed on individuals, not on corporations. But there is an exception to that, isn't there? It is that it picks up any capital gains that flow through to an individual's tax return. So that if an if a individual has, is a shareholder in a, what's called an S corporation, uh, that's a type of corporation where all the tax, which is not taxed directly, but all of the taxable activities flows through to the returns of its shareholders, those capital gains would potentially show up for taxation. Also, it picks up uh, flow-through entities like limited liability companies and partnerships will be taxed on the individual return. It will hit state residents and non-state residents somewhat differently. For a state resident, it will be taxes on in-state real estate, on any tangible personal property that's sold for a gain, if that's sold in the state, also if it's sold out of state but it has been within the state in in their immediate past. Uh, And then it will apply for the intangibles, things like stocks and bonds. So so I'm going to stop you there for a second. So I go through E-Trade and I purchase a stock uh, on the New York Stock Exchange and I'm sitting in Clarkston, Washington, and well, I, I have a big gain. I buy low and sell high. What's yep. my situation? If you are so fortunate as to buy low and sell high, um, <laughs> the state will require you to share a portion of your good fortune with the, with the treasurer. Okay. Um, yes. If you sold a, a share of stock, even if you sold it out of state on an out-of-state exchange, and you're uh, a resident of the state, uh, they will attempt to collect capital gains tax on you. For non-state residents, the tax really only applies to physical property that's sold, that's owned and sold in Washington State. So if you were to own a, a building in, in Seattle and sold it for a gain, uh, you don't tax as even if you happen to live in Portland. If you're from out of state and you happen to sell, um, say, a, a valuable automobile in state where you actually had, had a gain, the state would, would assert the right to tax that. The tax would be subject to a, an annual exclusion of $25,000. For a $25,000 of gain for an individual would not be subject to the tax. And for a couple filing jointly, $50,000 would avoid taxation, the first $50,000. If we're dealing with a, the sale of a home, a principal at residence, not a second home, vacation home, 
uh, it's treated the same way as it is for the federal return. The, for an individual, the first $250,000 of gain on a house is, would avoid taxation. And for uh, a couple filing jointly, it would be uh, the first $500,000 of gain. Okay, so now there are some other exemptions too, Chris, that, uh, that you had outlined in an earlier report. Yes. Uh, so there's a few people get off a little bit lighter. Don't yes, they? There's, there's certain, there are a number of uh, exemptions for um, farmers, particularly with farmland and for livestock. Um, these are sort of paralleling things that are in the federal code, I believe. And then there is a, uh, an exemption for uh, timber, which uh, under the federal tax code in certain uh, situations is subject to to taxation at the capital gains rate, and that those transactions would be exempt in Washington state. Okay. Uh, the governor's proposal was 7%, which is uh, pretty steep. I remember you saying that it was the 11th highest. Well, I think you had a chart in your, in your earlier report on this, 11th highest in the United States. So now uh, the new proposal coming out of the uh, state house is 5%. How does that stack up? It gets us uh, much lower down the list, but still. Yeah, I think, uh, actually, I'm looking here now, 28th. Oh. Tied Thank with uh, Alabama, Illinois, Mississippi, and Utah, referring oh. to your uh, chart from that earlier oh. Thank report. you very much. But this 5%, it's lower, but there's still a fairly significant amount of revenue would yeah, be Yeah, there developed. would be the revenue forecast, um, such as it is for the first year. Uh, that would be gains in uh, 2016. The money would actually come in in April of 2017. This tax uh, would generate $570 million in that year. It's very hard to forecast capital gains revenues because it's such a volatile source. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really don't have a, um, a history of, of collecting the tax here. So they're doing, there's a lot of hypotheticals that go even into this calculation. So we'll so talk about the volatility yeah. in a moment. But one thing that is uh, probably attractive to the proponents of a capital gains tax, at least with the estimates that have been uh, undertaken so far, how many people would pay this tax in Washington State? In a typical year, only about uh, 23000 they estimate. And about half of the revenue will, will come from only 1,000 people. So it's half of the revenue will yeah. come from 1,000 people? Yes. Um, okay. That's not even the one percent, is it? That's a that's a fraction of the one percent, maybe. But yeah, that would be. I mean, with about six million, uh, well, that's that's a problem. We're saying a thousand people. It's probably a thousand tax returns, and my, there may be a couple of people on each of the each return. So, so there's something very interesting, Chris, about how this tax is being billed. Because if you look on the bill, if you go on the legislative website on either one of or any of these three bills, the two earlier ones at 7% or this new one at 5%, they're calling it an excise tax. What's this all about? Well, this is about trying to create a loophole that gets you past the uh, Supreme Court interpretation that says that an income tax uh, at a rate above 1% is unconstitutional. Decision from 1933 ruled that income is property and that all therefore all constitutional restrictions on property taxes apply to income taxes. So that under that interpretation of the Constitution, the maximal capital gains tax rate would be 1%. 
they are casting this not as an income tax, but as a an excise tax on the uh, right to take a capital gains or sell property in the state. So, uh, so people in other states who file their state income tax, and then they go to file their federal income tax, and they can deduct their state income tax from their federal income tax. But will we be able to deduct this capital gains tax uh, on our federal tax, the state tax? Well, that's an interesting question. If the feds actually read our law, this law, very carefully, they might argue that this, if this is, if the state rules this is not an income tax, and it probably shouldn't be an income tax for federal purposes, and the federal purposes only allow deduction of a limited number of taxes, well, the income taxes being one. I actually think, as a practical matter, the feds would look the other way and just probably say, well, it is an income tax, okay. uh, and we'll do it. But it puts us in a funny situation where we're kind of like benefiting from the fact the feds call it an income tax, but then in order to actually get it through, we're, we're holding it. It's, it's not, not an income not, tax. It's not Uh-oh, an income a little, fun, be a so little funny go, business and, there. And, and remember that when the um, current federal law uh, says people are allowed either a deduction of income taxes or a deduction for sales taxes, but can't deduct both. Mm-hmm. So for the number of folks who will, it's particularly those with relatively low levels of, of capital gains, will find they would rather continue to deduct uh, sales taxes rather than to deduct income taxes. So they actually will choose not to take a deduction on this. Sure. And those who are a little bit higher who actually are deducting it will end up losing their sales tax deduction, so the value of this, of the deductibility, will end up being fairly low for them. So, Chris, you've written before about the volatility of this type of a tax. Can you speak about that and what uh, Chairman Carlisle has tried to do to address that issue and, and what that even means, what this yeah, volatility uh, means? The, the tax is volatile if the, uh, the amount of revenue the state gets from, from the tax varies a considerable amount from year to year. Taxes on capital gains are notoriously volatile. Most volatile portion of the of the federal tax stream, and in most states that have an income tax, the taxes from the uh, capital gains are the most volatile portion of the income tax. Studies have shown that uh, capital gains have actually become more volatile in the last 15 years than it had been previous to that. We have a couple of studies that have looked across uh, state revenue systems. Um, I've identified the, the states with the most volatile revenue systems are those with income taxes. Um, and among those, the ones that are with the most volatile revenue streams are those that rely heavily on capital gains for their income mm-hmm. tax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those studies, which actually incorporated Washington in the 50-state comparisons, show that right now our state tax system is among the least volatile in the country, despite what many people around here seem to think. Yeah, most people think our form of taxation in this state is terrible, and they have different reasons, but one of them is that reason you cited. What you find is people here believe that we have a bad tax system. They come up with a list of things that potentially could be bad about it and just assume that we're bad in each one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of, the the syllogism isn't quite worked that way, Uh, but... I mean, I don't know that this is true, but uh, Winston Churchill used to say democracy is the worst form of government except for every other form of government. I wonder if there's some applicability to that when we look at our tax system. Oh, oh, that's exactly right. Everybody agrees that we need tax reform. It's just that nobody can agree what we should reform to. That's particularly true about our B&O tax. Getting to a core issue now. 
getting a little bit more into uh, economic philosophy and the mechanics of economics. When you tax capital, you are in some way inhibiting its formation, are you not? Yes, I, I would phrase it that it, when you tax capital on a state level, you um, cause it to move elsewhere, mm-hmm. or you, you inhibit its movement to the state. It's not as if there's going to be less capital overall, there'll just be less here. Taxing capital gains here has the potential uh, to serve as a bit of a break on the, on the state's economy. But it's hard to measure, isn't it? In other words, yes. you, you can't say uh, an attorney in Maryland now won't buy a piece of property in Washington. You can't measure that. Yeah, but in fact, you, he might not. If you have somebody who's a Washington state resident, you're going to be taxing their capital gains no matter where that gain occurs. So for that individual, uh, the issue becomes whether they do less investment overall than they otherwise would mm-hmm. or uh, do they actually choose to move from the state. Because, mm-hmm. of, because of this tax. For real property investments in the state, and you're looking at out-of-state investors who are deciding whether or not to invest in real property here, real property, real estate, you know, then we are imposing a, a capital gains tax on them, and that, that will influence at the margin the decision of how much external funds will flow into the state for real estate investments. Sure. It's hard to know exactly how big the impact will be. And, and the other thing we don't know is what loopholes people are going to find that allow them to continue to invest here, but not to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will be a lot of effort going into those. You know, so good I'll news, bet. bad news, good news, good news. Well, there people are going to go, uh, are not going to stop investing here because they're going to figure out how to avoid the tax. And the bad news is you don't have to get that revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been talking about a newer bill. It's not a brand new bill, but a newer bill, a newer version of this idea that's come from the House Finance Committee chair. So what is the status of this bill? The bill was given a hearing, which was not too surprising (laughs) since the bill's author chairs the committee and determines what comes up for hearing. Uh, but He's very hearing, impressed with his bill, isn't he? But since, since the hearing was uh, was held, there's been no further action. It was part of a, a larger, one piece of a larger revenue bill that, that Chairman Carlisle had introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, bill is uh, House Bill 2224. The elements of the bill showed up on the balance sheet associated with the budget that mm-hmm. the House passed, and it, it sort of served its function because it provides revenue that allows them to have a balance sheet for the spending plan and, they, and passing it through. Not clear the extent to which the elements of that bill are actually ultimately going to be in play or not. We'll be holding our breath. Negotiations going on about the spending plan, and they're going to have to adopt a revenue plan to to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And there are a large number of elements that are kind of in play right now for that plan. And we won't really know uh, which elements get chosen until the very end of the game. We're well aware that there's a partisan divide uh, between the House and the Senate, and there's often a divide between the House and the Senate whether there's a partisan divide or not. But the uh, yeah. the Senate has uh, taken the approach of passing a complete budget, a bill that has all the elements, everybody's yes. voted on it, and the House has taken a different approach, haven't that's, they? They have. They've just... Um, I mean, all the way across the board, not just about capital gains. That's right. At this point, you don't really know how much support there is for a capital gains tax in the House. Mm-hmm. Even though it's an element of the budget they passed, the members haven't actually 
voted on the individual revenue elements of it. Sure. So in summation, and you and I kind of did this exercise the other day, looking at pro and con about this tax. So the proponents are saying, look, this bill is only 5%. We're now only 28th in the United States. We're not fifth, so it's lower than it was before. They're saying that this is a good bill because it targets very precisely the folks who are most able uh, to pay it. And then there's, of course, people who uh, want an income tax in this state and see this as an entree to an income tax, which I think that is correct. And then we talked about the instability. We talked about it again, the volatility in this uh, program. And there is some attempt to, uh, to yeah, deal with that. Yeah, that was something we, hadn't, we, hadn't, we haven't mentioned up till now, that we had complained uh, about the Inslee bill, that, you know, that it's above the volatility and that there was really nothing that dealt with that. This bill directs the revenue from the uh, capital gains tax into a new state account, the Student Investment Fund. And then specifies that a certain amount of money from each year will be transferred out of that fund to the general, to the uh, effectively into the general fund, into the education legacy trust account, which is used to fund education. It's set up so that at least initially the amount being transferred out is less than the amount that's forecast to come in. The argument is that in good years, this account will build up funds. And then in lean years, there will be a surplus in the fund that can be used to continue to make the transfers out even when revenues from the capital gains tax are low. Uh, You know, if you're going to do a capital gains tax, that's a pretty good way to deal with the volatility, except, you know, starting out, they're setting those initial draws pretty high. You know, in the first year, they're going to only put $20 million away in reserves. And this is in a period in which capital gains are flowing in pretty big. I think the heart's in the right place, but I don't think the execution Mm -hmm. uh, is really up to snuff to Mm. to deal with this. A little bit of a problem. But then the last thing that, of course, is a good thing from uh, the point of view of folks who support this idea is it brings in new revenue. You pointed out, what, $570 million the first year? It's a new new revenue source. It provides some additional funds um, in the upcoming budget cycle, which I, I guess could be seen to be a good thing. And it adds another revenue source. So even though it's volatile, it's got some volatility that's not lined up with the volatility of other taxes. So now, Chris, I've just laid out five reasons why we should have a capital gains tax. Are there any reasons that maybe we should not have one? There's the instability one. Another one is it potentially inhibits capital formation in the state. This bill is written. It doesn't allow the carry forward of losses. and, And you'll see that there are good years and bad years. And under federal law, if you have a bad year and you take a bunch of capital losses, you get to carry them forward and offset future gains. And that would be allowed under this, and which makes the 5% rate effectively somewhat higher because if it's just going to hit you in in the good years. There's the issue of deductibility. Even if you do deduct it, you have to give up the sales tax. And then the other thing is that it will be challenged as an income tax. And that means, among other things, that you can't be absolutely sure that you'll be able to collect the revenue. Mm-hmm. And you can't be even sure if if it's ultimately upheld, whether it will be upheld in time to uh, to get revenue in the upcoming uh, biennium. And then there's the issue of how this will feed into Supreme Court decisions and whether this would become a vehicle for the Supreme Court to actually uh, blow away the uh, constitutional interpretation of income being property. That would be a negative. 
it seems to me that if you're going to have an income tax, you want to do it by adopting it in the state constitution and setting up some pretty strong sideboard on the tax. Mm -hmm. It would be a most unfortunate thing to have the state Supreme Court just blow them all away. Well, we'll see what is going to happen. The governor is still touting a uh, capital gains tax. The uh, House Finance Committee chair has included it in the House budget. And even if it is not successful in this legislative year, when you look at only 30,000 people likely to have to pay it, uh, looks like it uh, might have some attractiveness for folks uh, who would put it on the ballot as an initiative yeah. next year. It's easy to imagine this proposal making it to the ballot as an initiative. Indeed. Well, the Washington Research Council will keep you appraised of the latest developments on the capital gains tax proposal. My name is Lou Moore. I've been here today talking with our senior economist and research director, Chris Showbloom. Thank you so much for joining us. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.